Thanks to Health IQ for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com/fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. Also, thanks to Quip for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brogan, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. So true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I went strong bad with that one, but I did. Anyway, it's the November mailbag, and we're going to answer your questions on the wash sale rule, how to decide what stocks to sell when you need some cash, and how to capitalize on the student loan crisis. Right, Ross? <laughs> yes. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. Thanks for coming back and joining us. Thanks for inviting me. For yet another mailbag episode. Yes. Yes, that is that is what is happening here right at this moment. I guess we should just jump into it, huh? Well, should we introduce Ross a little bit? Just Ross to remind our listeners. He's a planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister, sister company, company of the, the Motley, Motley Fool, uh, and just an all-around great guy. Oh, That's thanks. so true. Um, I don't believe what the raccoons say about you. <laughs> you are a legit nice guy. And a good um, drummer, I might add. As demonstrated, very mediocre drummer. As demonstrated at a recent Fool event. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because you're part of the Duke Street Hooligans or whatever yes. the band, the <laughs> yeah. local band name our, is. Our, our band of, of fools. Yes. Oh, you guys I enjoyed are great. it. I didn't hear it, so I assume you're good. Uh, okay. Well, I guess let's just get into it, huh? Yeah, Rick's making a face like yes. this small talk <laughs> is killing him. Okay, here we go. First question comes from Brett. I hold a portfolio of various individual stocks and U.S. stock index funds, small, mid, and large cap. I am curious about the logic behind holding small and mid cap funds for me, since the major winners in these funds eventually find themselves in a large cap fund, like the S&P 500. So, for a winner like Amazon, I assume it made its rounds from small cap, then mid cap, and finally to the S&P 500 all along the way, having shareholders of those funds paying capital gains as it was sold and repurchased. I like the idea of holding small cap individual stocks, but that is because I get to choose when to sell and pay my capital gains, which will likely be many years after it is a large cap resting place. Since I already have small cap exposure with a portion of my stock picks, does it make any sense to still be invested in small and mid cap funds? Well, Brett, I'll take your last part first. I would say if you have a diversified portfolio of individual small cap stocks, you don't necessarily then need to have a small cap index fund. It seems one of your big concerns is the capital gains issues. And what he's saying, like, let's say you mentioned Amazon. When Amazon came public, it was worth like $400 million. Now it's $860 billion. And as it moved, let's say it was in a small cap fund, and then it eventually moved up to a mid cap fund, while the small cap fund had to sell it and then buy into the mid cap fund. And, and funds do have to make their capital gains distributions, although, as we'll talk about a little later, ETFs are actually pretty tax efficient in the way they handle that. I would say if your goal is to try to get into the next Amazon, then yes, buying an individual stock is probably the way to do it. But more not for the, the tax implications, more that as a company goes, let's say it becomes one of the biggest holdings of the small cap fund and then it moves to the mid cap fund, you're going to water it down. They're not going to let it be a big holding in that mid cap fund. Um, so you're not going to actually have the you know the riding up of getting it on the ground floor and having it be worth billions and billions of dollars. 
Um, that said, the honest truth is very, very few companies become the next Amazon. So I would say that you should keep your expectations in check. Most of those could still be very solid companies, um, but it probably they, there's only a select few of companies of the thousands that actually make it into the S&P 500. Um, and just because a company doesn't grow from a small cap to a mid cap to a large cap doesn't mean it can't be a bad investment. Looking at, over at like the last 15 years, um, looking at an S&P 500 index fund like the iShares one, the S&P 500 earned 8.9%. The S&P 400, which is a mid-cap index, earned 9.5%. And the S&P 600, which is a small-cap index fund, earned 9.2%. So, owning those funds still provided market-beating returns, if you define market-beating by beating the S&P 500. So, I still think they're worth owning for most people. So, you have just the teensiest little bit of glitter on your forehead, and I'm wondering why. I haven't the slightest idea. It's just a little bit of blue glitter, just right there in the little crease. Oh, now it's gone. You got it. Okay. All right. The bro globe. The bro globe. <laughs> it was the bro globe. <laughs> All right. Next question comes from Tori. <clears throat> Longtime listener and a big fan. Stocks. I was hoping you can help sort out some confusion I have. When looking at an individual stock, I am constantly reminded of the rule of thumb. Past performance is not an indicator of future performance. However, when planning for retirement, I frequently hear it said that the stock market traditionally grows around 7 to 10% annually, and so, to be conservative, I should expect a return on my retirement portfolio of 5 to 7%. I love how um, she's saying I frequently hear it, and but as if it's like, not coming out of your face, Robert Brokamp, because basically this is like verbatim what comes. Bro out is of. frequently saying it. Yeah, yes. as I frequently hear Bro saying. My question is: Why is past performance not an indicator of future performance on the micro level, but seems to be used as an indicator of future performance on a macro level? Yeah, so I I think that this is an interesting question, and and it ought, it actually made me pause and even ask myself the same question. So. And when you're looking at an individual stock, if you simply looked at what has done best in the past year and said, I'm going to pile into those because those are obviously the good ones, uh, I think you're headed for a rough time, right? Because it's kind of a, uh, it's a sloppy way to invest. You're not necessarily saying what's going to do well in the future. It's like driving your car looking out the rearview mirror, right? That's not necessarily how you're going to figure out where things are going. Um, but at the big picture level, if we're zooming out and looking at not just the past year or the last five years, we're talking about decades worth of history of what the stock market does. And effectively, what you're looking at is what premium are you getting paid to participate in the equity of these companies? Uh, and, and that's been fairly consistent. So you quoted 7 to 10%. And I agree with that, particularly for large cap stocks, that that's a pretty comfortable range. But you're looking at a huge collection of companies when, when you look at that statistic. Um, so I'm I'm comfortable with that, but you don't necessarily want to pick an individual company that way, or even a manager. You know, working in Motley Fool Wealth Management, which is part of our money management business, people will often say to us, "Well, how have you been doing?" And we're willing to share that performance, but it always comes with that disclaimer that you know, when you're evaluating an investment manager, whether it's us or somebody else, you really want to ask the question: How is this happening? Is this process driven, or is it luck? Um, you know, and and what is leading to those results? And and that. That's why you're always getting that warning because you can't just look at what's done well and assume that that's always going to be the winner. Um, but but if you get under the hood further and say what really aligns with my views, that's how we want you to pick stocks uh, and think about your stocks. And so I think that's uh, really more of a warning there that that you shouldn't 
be sloppy in terms of your process, but over very long periods of time, the stock market has been really consistent about delivering value. Um, and so, on a forward-looking basis, as investors, I think we have to believe that that, that companies are going to continue to solve problems, deliver, and add value in your portfolio. Yeah, I guess since you brought me into this, I should just explain that. You know, every year brought you into every... this. You are a part of this show every week. It's not like I'm your surprise guest or anything. But but you mentioned my like lowered return, right? So every year I I do this survey of what various financial services firms are saying are their capital market assumptions, which is basically what should I put into my retirement calculator to figure out how much I could hypothetically earn, so I know I'm saving enough to retire. And for a good, I don't know what, five years, people have been expecting US large caps to earn below average returns based on valuation. But of course, they just keep earning more and more. Um, so that's one reason. The other thing, too, is when you're looking at like a retirement calculator, you ideally, most people, especially as they get close to retirement, they're not just invested in stocks, they also have bonds and cash. So while the stock market has traditionally returned 10% or so, your portfolio, as you get closer to retirement, for sure, will probably be earning lower because you won't be completely in the stock market. I mean, I, we've definitely seen that in the calculators that we use. All the financial planning software is using much more modest assumptions if you're looking at their forward-looking projections than if you look at kind of the the historical. Um, and I know you've talked about Schiller Cape a lot in the past, and it continues to be elevated. Which I, I think when people hear that, they th- they hear a crash is coming, and it may not be that. It might just be that. Returns are going to be muted from where you might expect them to be. So I don't necessarily think of that as a crash predictor at all. And so I want to make sure people aren't hearing this thinking, yeah, we're we're calling for a market downturn because I don't really think of it that way. More so, just keeping your expectations in check. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Greg. I realize you get the Roth versus traditional question a lot, and the answer usually boils down to, "quote Will your tax rate be higher now or in retirement?" However, there's two questions that seem important but not often discussed. Will you be maxing out your 401k? If traditional, are you investing your tax savings in a brokerage account? The reason I ask these are that they seem important to the math. I would appreciate hearing your analysis on the role these questions might should play in making this decision. Definitely the second one is important. Whenever you use any sort of tool online that evaluates whether you should be choosing the Roth or the traditional, it always assumes that because you are contributing to the traditional, you are getting a tax break today, and you are investing that money for your retirement. You're basically saying, I'm getting this break, and I'm putting it somewhere else, because when I retire, that account, when I take that money out, I'll have to pay taxes. You can also think of that side side account as like your tax bill paying account. Whereas the Roth is the other way around. When you put the money in, you get no tax break, but then you don't pay taxes in retirement. So that analysis always assumes that. If in reality, though, you are not reinvesting the tax break you get by contributing to the traditional, you will be better off in the Roth in most situations. In some ways, Roth is, is, makes you save more because you're not getting that tax break, but you're, you're saving on taxes in retirement. The other benefit of the Roth is that you can get around the required minimum distributions at age 70 and a half. Um, the first question, will you be maxing out your 401k? I don't know if that, how that would impact the decision between Roth and traditional. Any reason why that would occur to you, Ross? Roth? I'm Ross on the Roth? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it's, it's really about your total savings rate, and, and, and are you capturing the savings if you're, if you're treating it from that, that pre-tax uh, bucket? 
Yeah. As I often say, it, it, contributing to the Roth, no one gets to retirement with a lot of Roth assets and feels bad about it. No. Mm-hmm. They're very happy to have a big account that is tax-free. Totally. All right, next question comes from Jack. My wife and I are in our early and mid-40s, respectively, work for Uncle Sam, and have spent many years serving overseas. As a result, we have approximately a million dollars socked away for retirement in the TSP, Thrift Savings Plan, IRAs, and an old 401k. We have two young kids, so we're not planning to retire anytime soon, and we'll probably serve overseas more during our career. I have around 225000 in foolish stocks in my IRA and brokerage accounts, while our 750000 in TSPs and 2040 funds and the bedrock of our retirement planning. Can we count on the inherent rebalancing of our life cycle funds to cover the recommendation of including bonds in our portfolio, or should I introduce some into our non-TSP plans as well? So, Jack, I appreciate the question. You know, that... that seems to me that the inherent information that you're receiving is that you should own some bonds. And so I, I kind of want to challenge that first and and question whether or not you should, because I really look at risk on two factors. Uh, number one is your capacity to take risk, uh, which for most people is really just time horizon. right? So you, you said your mid-40s, if you're going to continue to work for a while, you probably have plenty of time to be a stock investor at this point. You've got lots of time for, to go through dips and recoveries, and, and you're fine there. And then the second is really a temporary question or a risk tolerance question. Um, and it sounds to me like you're saying, well, do I have to have these bond things, even if I already have some? If you've got time on your side, I don't think the answer is that you have to have them either in the TSP or not in the TSP, quite frankly. So, so I don't know that that you need to be looking for ways to add them or feel like the, um, the financial advisors of the world are, are telling you to do that. If you are comfortable with a more bumpy ride in your portfolio, that might be fine. Um, and, and at the same time, that 2040 fund is going to continue to decrease in risk as you get closer to retirement. And it's going to take that choice out of your hands. Um, so, so that may be exactly what you want if you don't want to be paying attention to that asset allocation. So I'm not telling you to abandon your current plan, but uh, I would just go back to the fundamentals of why are you considering adding bonds to your portfolio or feel like you're, you're being pressured to do so um, and whether or not that's accurate. Now, you know why? Do, why do bonds make sense for for some investors? Again, it's either to blunt the ride a little bit so that they're not on as crazy of a roller coaster. Because the worst thing we can do for people is put them into an all stock portfolio, saying this is going to be where you make the most money. They have one bad year and they go, oh my gosh, I'm getting off this thing. This sucks. Um, so so that's a really bad outcome, and we don't ever want to lead people into that. And then number two is if you're trying to create more dry powder. For whatever your your call is, right? If you think that stocks are inflated and we might have a better buying opportunity, um, you know, the more your portfolio grows, the smaller your contributions are as a percentage of it, right? So you're talking about a pretty meaningful portfolio at this point. Let's say you're putting in ten to twenty thousand dollars a year. It's a lot less percentage wise than it might have been when you only had $150,000 in savings. And so you can't count on that additional cash to be as much your dry powder anymore. So if you want some dry powder, having some bonds can provide that for you. So there's a couple reasons that you might consider including it, but but don't start from the assumption that you have to just because people talk about having bonds. Yeah, you have a lot of your money in the 2040 fund. I took a look at its current allocation. I love target date funds, but they tend to be more conservative than maybe the average Motley Fool listener reader would like. So the 2040 fund has 27% of its assets in cash and bonds. Hmm. If you have a 20-year horizon until you retire, that's pretty conservative. Uh, and it gets even more conservative so that by the time you reach that retirement age, it's like 68% in cash and bonds. That's really conservative, much more conservative than I would recommend. Um, so 
um, the, the solution there is is to sort of do what Ross suggests, either get out of the 2040 fund altogether and just invest in stocks, or choose a target date that is further out than your real retirement age. And since you're a government employee, I don't know what you've done, but you might also be going to uh, do a pension. You might get a pension. And a pension is sort of like a big, fat bond fund. So, if you're going to get a pension, that's even more reason why you can take more risk in your TSP and in your, your brokerage account. Agreed. I think I need to do that. I need to do a farther out target date fund. So, I'm right there with you, Jack. Thanks to Health IQ for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Average eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Eat a quality plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four more times per week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. Isn't it time you be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for health disease, cancer, and diabetes. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com slash fool. Our next question comes from Mihul. In a taxable brokerage account where my goal is to match returns of the S&P 500 while minimizing my year-over-year tax burden, is it better to invest in a Vanguard 500 ETF or in Berkshire Hathaway? My investment time frame is 20 years. I believe Berkshire would be more tax efficient, but my wife favors the index fund even though less efficient because she is concerned about what will happen to Berkshire once Warren Buffett is no longer around. What are your thoughts? Well, I like that you are thinking of tax implications when you're making your investments, but I think it's important to point out that you never make taxes the primary deciding factor here. Um, the reason why he's suggesting that Berkshire would be more tax efficient is because it doesn't pay a dividend, and then as it buys, it sells its companies within. You don't have to. It doesn't make any capital gains distributions. Unlike an S and P 500 index fund, does pay dividends, and it can make distributions. However, the ETF structure for a couple things. First of all, because it's an index fund, there's not a whole lot of buying and selling because not a whole lot of changes in the index fund, and then the ETF structure is inherently tax efficient. So, if you look at Morningstar, Morningstar provides the tax cost analysis on funds and ETFs. I looked at Vanguard's 500. They estimate that over the last three years, taxes would have cost someone about 0.6% a year, and that's if you were in the highest tax bracket. So, it's actually pretty tax efficient. Um, I'm someone who owns Berkshire. Of course, you can do both, own some Berkshire and the S&P 500 index fund. It is interesting to me, though, that after I read this question, it's the first time I really thought, you know, Warren Buffett's 89 years old. Mm. And how much longer do we have? And what's going to happen to the company when he passes? I assume on the day he passes, the stock will drop. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't cause me to want to sell it. If I still liked Berkshire, I would probably still buy it. But the fact of the matter is, you have a big, fat, mutual fund type of thing where the manager is very soon going to not be managing it? It's an interesting question. I go back to the very first line in this question, where he says, my goal is to match the returns of the S&P 500. I mean, if that's your goal, Berkshire isn't the answer. Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to match the S&P 500 returns or get very close to it, and that's an S&P 500 index fund. So, if that's truly your goal, I think it's an easy question. Now, if you're saying, which is a better investment? That that's a little bit different, but um, you know if that's how you're going to evaluate your performance is against the S and P, I think it's a simple 
simple answer. I never even thought of Berkshire Hathaway as being so diversified to even consider it like a index. Is it really that like diversified? I don't think of it like an index, but but people that otherwise are opposed to like funds tend to think of it that way really? because it's in such so many different lines of business. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean I don't know how how correlated C's candies and Geico are to each other, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so you yeah. end up getting some inherent diversification inside that company, um, but but no, I don't necessarily think of it like an index fund. Right. It would still be pretty concentrated. Wonky. I think I just get so I just get hung up on like Dairy Queen and ones like that where I'm like, do I really want to be invested in Dairy Queen? <laughs> I mean, obviously it's like just a minuscule part of Berkshire Hathaway, but I think I get hung up on those consumer facing ones where I'm like. To, like seize candy, really? Really? You'd be hard pressed to find a, an index fund holding that much cash, too. So, uh. well, that's that's what I personally, as a shareholder, that's what I like about it because yeah. I do expect that over the long term, it will not significantly underperform, but at times of significant distress, it has a lot of cash to make mm. acquisitions. Yeah. And so. he has the chutzpah to the elephant gun. Go in. Yeah. The elephant gun. Yeah. He's going. He's going shopping. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from. Finland. Oscar. Okay, here we go. Hello, hello, hello from Finland. Oh, I wonder how you say hello in Finnish. Do you know? I should know, but I don't. Oh, oops. Okay, let's keep moving. I'm a fan of your show, even though living in a faraway country with very different from the U.S. pension and tax systems means that a big portion of your good advice is not directly applicable. So, I guess I'm listening to you more or less for weird science fiction kicks since all of the 401k things, in which nobody seems to have enough money, sounds somewhat dystopian. <laughs> I love that. However, I have a question for you. I own domestic as well as international stocks, and in my case, international stocks mo means mostly stocks of U.S. companies. Next year, the government is introducing a new kind of investing account, and I'm wondering whether it makes sense to use it when investing in U.S. companies. With a regular brokerage account, the taxes on capital gains are 30%, and the taxes on dividends are 25.5%. I'm simplifying, it's a bit more complicated, but let's not go there. With the new equity savings account, investors can own single stocks and not pay any tax on dividends or capital gains as long as the money stays inside the account, so it grows tax-free until you withdraw, and at that point, all the money you have made, gains plus dividends, is taxed at a 30% rate. Okay, sounds okay so far. But there's a catch with foreign stocks. If you own, for example, U.S. stocks with this new account, you still have to pay taxes on the dividends to the United States at a 15% rate as soon as the dividends are paid. Due to a tax treaty, the Finnish Tax Administration reimburses this when you operate in a regular brokerage account, but not with the new equity savings account, because with that, the dividends are not taxed in Finland at all. So, is it worth it, mathematically speaking? Maybe only with stocks that pay smallish dividends? Oscar, thank you so much. Our resident Finland expert here. Yeah. Well, so uh, I, I was so happy to read this question, and I'm going to level with you, Oscar. I'm completely unqualified to answer this question. <laughs> but you're Finnish. Right. So, well, so. so Doesn't uh, even know how to say hello in Finnish. I, 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 th I think it's hey. They use hey and hey, hey. Like, they, they use it like. Uh, when when I've heard it, they use it's almost like a low high, like it seems to be both hello and goodbye. Okay. Um, okay. I think that's what it is. Okay. But Oscar, I'm sorry, don't judge me. What percentage of you are is Finnish? My my mom is moved here as an exchange student oh, from okay. Finland, okay. and okay. I, there you go. my only blood relatives, on, like cousins and, and aunts and uncles, are are in Finland. Got it. Uh, or excuse, only only blood cousins. I have cousins here through through marriage, but. 
Um, but yes, so hello to my Finnish family. <laughs> I'm sure this will be the only thing you ever listen to me do simply because of this. Uh, but I had to take the question because of that. So Oscar, to your question, um, I'm going to take it at face value because I don't know anything about Finnish tax law. Uh, and and, and what, uh, I'm going to assume that as written, everything is perfect and it's exactly as you said it is. So His English is better than our Finnish, that's for sure. 100%. Um, so what it's what it reads like here is similar to an IRA account in the U.S. and an IRA account is a tax deferred account. So as you're investing inside the account, you're not being taxed on capital gains until you make the withdrawal, and that's the same thing for dividends here. Um, in this case, you're not getting any sort of foreign tax credit for dividends. So you're paying 15% on the dividend, and then another 30 when you're removing that. So if it works just the way you said, I think your question's a good one, and I don't think it makes sense to have big dividend payers in that account, because you're giving up a lot. Um, Now, there are plenty of stocks in the US, for example, the one we were just talking about, Berkshire Hathaway, that don't pay any dividend at all. So I think you've got lots of options uh, for how to invest this account in what are for you foreign stocks uh, that that may still be great ideas, and if you're following the fool, lots of those companies are growth oriented companies, maybe not dividend payers. Uh, even some of the dividend payers, you know, uh, I mean, like Microsoft, for example, is paying a dividend, but it's like one and a half percent, right? Much. So it, it's small enough that it, it might not kill you. But I think if you're, um, I think if you you have the option, I would go for your non dividend paying stocks in this sort of an account. And then locate your dividend payers in in a more preferred uh, tax status, which sounds like you've got access to. Bro, do you want to add your input on this question? I'm sure you know a lot about the Finnish tax system. I don't. I'm I just don't. messing with you. you don't I don't. But I do anything. know that Finland is is one of many other countries that have decided they need to raise the retirement age. So the retirement age used to be 63, but starting in 2017, they're gradually moving up to age 65. Which is what we should do here in America with Social Security, as far as I'm concerned. Next question comes from Ken through Twitter. I've got a gold ETF, GLD, and want to sell it to switch to a quote real investment. Tax consequences are terrible. Well, of course, the tax consequences always depend on when you bought it. So, GLD is the gold ETF. Um, it hasn't actually been doing all that well, so it's quite possible that I mean, it's it's down. It's at like 137 today. It was at over 180 back in 2011. It's a little up over the last couple of years, so I don't think the gold, the tax consequences are going to be bad because it hasn't done particularly well. I mean, maybe you've held it for a really long time. But what is interesting about this is that the capital gains rate, tax rates on collectibles, is higher than stocks. So the long-term capital gains rate for stocks, 15% for most people, for collectibles, it's 28%. Mm-hmm. And because this ETF actually owns Gold bars, it's considered a collectible. Oh. So it does have a longer capital gains rate. So if you were to buy this, if you're interested in buying this, it's probably better to certainly to keep it in a in a an IRA or 401k. Remember when like everyone was like buying and selling gold? Why was that? Because everyone they were afraid of all the stimulus from the Federal Reserve yeah. that inflation was just going to take off, which is why it shot up and got reached its high point in 2011. And then everyone realized actually this is not going to happen. We yeah. still don't have inflation, any inflation is exceptionally low. Yes, yeah. which is just goes back to why the whole idea of of gold being an inflation hedge is just it's just not true. I wonder if those are all vape shops now, <laughs> right? Like what happened to them? There's something. There's something. Maybe CBD stores. I don't yeah. know. Uh, okay, next question comes from Gareth. 
I would like to sell some of my portfolio. I have around 65 stocks, some in the positive and some negative. I was relatively new to investing and have been a stock advisor customer for 10 to 12 years. Wow, thanks, Gareth. But this is the first time I am looking to withdraw from my portfolio. Is there a best practice for selling some stock and withdrawing some cash? For example, sell my non-performing shares and write off the losses against my taxes, selling profitable shares or reducing positions and pay taxes, or a bit of both. All right, Gareth. So I think you're you're struggling with something that I hear a lot of foolish investors yeah, we get, the, yeah. get challenged with. Yeah. So uh, there is no perfect answer here, right? Uh, so so I'm going to tell you a couple of my rules of thumb, so to speak, in terms of starting to to sell off some things in your portfolio. Um, step one is that you've got to realize you're going to sell something and it's going to continue to go up, and that's okay. <laughs> you you have to you're make you're gonna make the wrong call. You, no well, it's not even that it's the wrong call. You just have to make peace with that. That it, as long as you haven't bought sixty five awful stocks, yeah. as you start to trim things, you're still gonna watch them go up and go. Wow, I wish I had still owned that, or I wish I still owned more of that. Um, if you didn't sell the whole thing, so uh, just know that that's still okay, and it still was probably the right decision. Um, the next easy ones to go after, if you've got a stock that's really too big or really small. Uh, and the reason being, one, if it's too big, it probably represents too much risk in your portfolio. So when I say too big, um, in my mind, that's normally like a 15 to 20% of your portfolio range. Um, for some advisors, they would say closer to 10. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're looking at one holding that seems to dominate your, your overall portfolio, Trimming it back is is probably a good idea, uh, and if you have really small holdings, normally they're really small. I think for for a couple reasons. Either one, you never really committed to buying them, hmm. right? You kind of limped in, wanted to see how it did, and and those are very emotionless stocks to sell because you're not really like bought in necessarily. Yeah, Marie Kondo those out of your life. Yeah, exactly. If it doesn't bring you joy, <laughs> get rid of it, yeah. right? So so you know those are the easy ones. Too big, too small. After that, it gets really tough, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend that you go through an exercise, get a pad of post-its, and I want you to write every single stock that you own on these post-its. One one post-it per stock, and without looking at your portfolio, put them in order of your confidence in the company. I just blindly make a kind of rank confidence list on which of these businesses do I believe in has the brightest future, and then start comparing that to your holdings. Because I think what happens for a lot of people is we buy these stocks, and then they go up, or they do well, or they don't, uh, and the position sizing ends up just kind of by happenstance. Right, just whatever happened to the performance of your buy is kind of what you end up with, uh, and that may not reflect what you believe in the world. Um, so, so you know, I think just making sure your portfolio is still a reflection of what you believe is really, really important. Um, there's no magic bullet. Selling stocks is difficult, especially if you've been holding them for a long time and like these businesses and the people running them. Uh, but those are those are my tips on how to get started. Thanks to Quip for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Quip, makers of the Quip electronic toothbrush, want you to know the single discovery that matters most for your dental care. It is simply this, that if you have good habits, you are good. That means brushing for two minutes twice a day and flossing regularly. Quip makes that simple. Their electronic toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to go a full and even clean. Plus, Quip delivers fresh, brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months with free shipping. We talked to some people here at The Motley Fool who love their quips, and not only do they say it fits great in their mouth, they say it looks really cool on their sink. 
So for people who care about things that look really cool, it's got a sleek design. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get quipped today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool, right now you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash fool. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash fool. Quip, the good habits company. question comes from John. I've been investing for almost three years and constantly read and research, but having a full-time job and keeping up with everything, I still feel kind of lost in it all. I do invest in individual stocks, mainly dividend payers. However, I also like to invest in index funds and ETFs. So what are your key indicators for choosing an ETF or index fund? I've noticed after going through a couple hundred of them that the top 10 holdings seem to be the same names. Yeah. Oh, John. Cap-weighted. <laughs> cap-weighted. Exactly. Probably large cap-weighted. So I would say the first thing to look at is what do you need to round out your portfolio. So you say you have dividend payers. I'm just going to assume they're mostly large cap. So I'm going to say you have. I'm going to guess you have a lot of large cap value oriented stocks. So you'd be looking for other types of funds that would round out your portfolio: small caps, mid caps, maybe international, something like that. So first of all, decide what you need to add to your portfolio. Second of all, costs really, really matter, especially when it comes to index funds. I mean, at this point, they're all pretty darn cheap, but you would definitely look at Costs on those. Um, it does make pay attention to look at the holdings. So I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, I wrote an article a few a couple of months ago comparing different small cap ETFs, and not only look at the holdings, but look at the median market cap because you could have a whole range of small cap ETFs, but some are smaller than others. So I looked at four: iShares, S&P, small cap ETF, iShares, Russell 2000, Schwab, and then Vanguard. And the average market cap of those companies range from 1.7 billion to 4.1 billion, which is really getting close to mid-cap territory. And that's the Vanguard fund. It's actually almost a small mid-cap fund. So I'd certainly say pay attention to that, to what's in there, and you want to look at. I mean, if you want a small-cap fund, you want the smallest companies possible, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Large-cap is really where you're going to see a lot of the same holdings over and over and over again. International is also the same way. When you look at market cap weighted international funds and ETFs, you're going to see the same companies over and over again. So you would want to look, if you already have one of those, look for something else that has something different. Yeah, I mean, what we're really talking about is is what is the index construction methodology? It's not so much about the product, because I think the product provider is going to matter in terms of the cost. You know, you've got an S&P 500 index fund that's being offered by Schwab or Vanguard or, you know, you know, whoever the other index funds are, but it's is the S and P five hundred the index you want to follow? Do you want to follow an S and P five hundred equal weight where they're going to like equal weight the sectors versus cap weight? Um, you know those types of things. That's kind of what you're getting into, which is pretty granular, and I don't think a lot of people look that deep at their no. index funds. I think they kind of read the asset class and pretty much plop their money into it, which is. Um, you know, we can debate whether or not that's what they should be doing, but uh, yeah, if you're really going to evaluate it, I think what you're looking for is uh, an index that's being constructed on values that you agree with. Yeah, John sounds like a real fact finder. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Jordan. I have a theory that student loan debt will cause the next major crash. Assuming I am correct, how would you suggest I invest to take advantage of massive defaults on student loans? 
I think, How can I profit from your pain? Right, right. Uh, I think this is a really interesting question, uh, and and it's also a challenging one, unfortunately, because I, I think it's a tough thing to get access to. Um, so honestly, I think your best bet is to go watch The Big Short if you haven't already, and and watch how they were trying to to short the mortgage market, which everybody thought of as as crazy at the time. Um, you know, you could do a couple things here. You could take a direct bet against a traded uh, student loan servicer, like a Sally May or Navient that trade. Um, that's a pretty risky thing to do. I mean, Navient pays almost a five percent dividend, mm. so your cost to carry a short there is going to be really, really painful for the time until you're right. If we assume that you're right, um, so so you know the timing there would matter. You could also do something like that with with options. Um, how a big institution would do it. Uh, would probably be a credit default swap. Um, so that's really what they were trading in when you watch the big short. That's what they were kind of creating was credit default swaps on those tranches or, or pieces of the loans. Um, that's really tough for a retail investor to access. Uh, you know, so so there was an article. Uh, it was I think it was a New York Times article back in 2017, and they had asked a couple of the big institutions who's doing this or have you created these products yet? And Goldman had said no, and Citi said no comment. So mm. I don't know. Maybe start with Citi and uh, <laughs> see see if there's product out there. But um, unfortunately, I, I I like the idea. I like that you're being creative about it. Uh, I hope that uh, the next major crash doesn't come from that. But um, it's going to be a difficult asset class to get access to. All right, and our last question comes from Sam. I have shares in my taxable brokerage account that I want to sell for a loss. I want to buy a portion of the holding in my Roth IRA. Does the wash sale rule apply? Do I need to wait 30 days to buy if it's in a different type account? Well, this is the time of year when people start thinking about tax loss harvesting. Um, and sorry to say, Sam, you can't get around it this way. Mm. So if you sell it and then buy it in another account, that violates the wash sale rule. If you sell it and your wife buys it in an account or your husband, that will violate it. Also, the 30 days is actually just half of the wash sale rule. The wash sale rule is actually 61 days, the 30 days before you sell and 30 days after. So you can't say, I'm going to buy it in my Roth today and then a week later sell it in my taxable account to take that loss. That violates it as well. So, IRS has thought about all these ways to get around the wash sale rule. Can't use options, put like a call on the stock or anything like Synthetic that. Synthetic long. Yes, exactly. So, generally speaking, if you're going to do the tax loss harvesting, you for the most part, you just have to accept that you're just not going to benefit from that stock if it goes up over those next 30 days. You can do similar things. So, for example, if this stock is Intel, you could sell that and then buy an ETF that owns semiconductors or something like that. So, if the semiconductor industry goes up and Intel's among those, of course, then you'll still do all right. But historically, on a month basis, I mean, it's about a 50 50 bet on whether the stock market goes up or down. So, I wouldn't try to game it too much. It might be that you sell the stock to take the loss, and then over the next 30 days, it goes down. And you're happy you did that. Yeah, I mean, last year was a was an example where it was particularly tough on somebody trying to sell for for wash sale or not for wash sale, but but for tax loss harvesting purposes. Right, the market fell hard basically from October through December, and almost on the last day of the year, decided it was going to like rebound off the mat. And January was just spectacular. And so, if you had sold sometime in that December time frame, trying to capture the tax benefit, it was it was kind of a rough time to do it. Um, so, you know, the environment that we're in. 
not necessarily falling like a knife at the moment. So it might be a safer time to do something like that this year than, than it was last year. All right. Well, that's it for the questions. Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And your completely unqualified advice about Finnish tax law. That's great. We'll have you next next month, Portugal. Right? That's why people listen to this show, isn't it? For unqualified financial advice? They get it every episode. You made up for it with the other questions. Uh, All right, let's head to the mailbag that I uh, pay closer attention to. So we had some visitors to Fool HQ. Um, So I just wanted to give a shout out to Denise and her husband, Bill, who stopped by. She sent a lovely thank you note and some pictures. I think she sent them. Didn't she send them to YouTube? She did, yes. Um, And then also to Andrew and Sean, the brothers who stopped by uh, this last week and talked Magic the Gathering with David Gardner. Yes, I heard they had a lot of fun. Um, I also want to say thank you to everyone who wrote in and also on Twitter. And emails um, saying how much they enjoyed the China episode with Ben Ra. We got a lot of really nice feedback okay. about that episode. Uh, all right, let's head to some other postcards here. All right. Rich sent a card uh, from Carlsbad Caverns uh, in case the wood one didn't make it, but they both made it. So that's mm-hmm. nice. Uh, Thad sent a card from Macau. 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 Sure. Macau. Is that our first from Macau? Maybe. Maybe. It could be. Uh, and PT sent you a card from Joshua Tree National Park. He said, if you became a priest, <laughs> I would give you my confessions. Which is uh, kind of wow, funny. But really, you heal financial souls. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> uh, and then he also sent me a card from the Los Angeles County Museum, which I happen to have a stolen spoon from. What? Yeah, back in my 20s, I used to... Steal stuff? No, no. It was very sweet. I went out. I went. I went. A friend was living in Los Angeles, and I went to visit him. And we went into the all. You know, just went all over that museum. And then afterwards, I was admiring the spoon that I got with my cappuccino. And I was like, "Oh man, this is a really great spoon. It's got a really great weight to it." And then we walk out the door, and he's like, "Ta-da! I stole the spoon for you." Is that how you know that you're an adult when you start admiring the spoon? Yes. No, I was what in a, my twenties. What a I was great still spoon! This was a good. It just had a good weight to it. But you're still not an adult because you're stealing it. So it was like nice in between period yeah, in your twenties where you're almost an adult. So thank you, Mariah. I still do have that spoon somewhere. So he's an adult now. I'm, I guess I pretty much am too. All right. Well, that's the show. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Uh, we just have one more mailbag this year. That's true. Oh, wait. Or do we even do a mailbag in December? I don't know if we do. We usually don't do an episode that last week of December. So this might be the last this one of the year. This might be the last mailbag last of the year. Last one of the year. Wow. Thank it's you. been a great year. Thank you. It has been a good year. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, our email is answers at fool.com. So please still send us your questions and we'll get to them in January, potentially, uh, if not in December. Ross, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. Always uh, a pleasure. Again, uh, the show is edited kleptomaniacally by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.